Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Wednesday, the 22nd of April, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, your COVID-19 update. And we have a special interview with academic and thought leader Dennis Altman talking about the COVID-19 situation and how that reminds a lot of gay men about the fear and stigma they felt during the HIV epidemic. And we talk a bit of politics with him as well. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for Wednesday, April 22nd. Global COVID-19 cases now exceed 2.5 million, including 175,000 deaths, according to Johns Hopkins University. Although many countries globally are recording a slowing case rate, the World Health Organization is warning the global infection rate is likely to pick up as the virus makes its way into Africa. Containment in the African region is still possible, according to the World Health Organization. Large shipments of supplies, including test kits and personal protective equipment, are being sent to help efforts. The United Nations is warning COVID-19 could push 265 million people into acute hunger, nearly doubling current hunger rates. Countries of highest concern are in African and Middle Eastern regions, with the head of the World Food Programme saying we're heading into famines of biblical proportions. Beyond malnutrition, another major concern is how lack of food weakens the immune system, which could lead to worse outbreaks of COVID-19. Human trials for possible COVID-19 vaccines are beginning in the United Kingdom this week. If successful, these vaccines could enter mass production as early as September. It actually takes around 18 months to find vaccines for new diseases, but the process is being sped up in the UK under the supervision of the British Medicine Regulator. The British government has pledged £40 million to this project. The country has so far recorded 17,000 COVID-19 deaths. Australia Post is cutting back services in metropolitan areas during the pandemic, limiting letter delivery to every second day and reassigning posties to deal with the backlog of parcels. Another change will see signatures no longer being required for parcel deliveries in order to limit physical contact. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The Informer Daily is produced each day by a team at Joy 94.9 here in Melbourne. My show, The Informer, gets a small grant from the Community Broadcasting Foundation because they recognize the importance of current affairs that talk to the LGBTIQA plus community from the community. And that's not something you're going to see on commercial FM and not really on our public service broadcasters. It's places like Joy and Community Radio that that happens. So, what can you do? You can become a member. 
if you're not interested in being a member, you can subscribe. There are levels that start at $5 per month. So it's a nice, simple donation. Or you can just donate one off. And I know that times are tough for a lot of people right now and things are very uncertain. So please give what you can. Every donation helps. And we thank you very much for your support. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Dennis Altman is a well-known thought leader and activist. He sat down with Informer contributor Toby Halligan. Here's Dennis. There's been a lot of comment uh, by people who lived through the early stages of the AIDS epidemic uh, about the similarities to what's happening now. And I have to say, I'm on the whole not convinced because... My sense is this feels rather different. And I think it feels different because this is an epidemic that is affecting everybody. Whereas when AIDS came along, uh, it very clearly affected groups of people who were already highly stigmatized. In fact, the first name for about a year or a year and a half when uh, something showed up was GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And I think that at least in the Western world, AIDS never lost that connection. So there was a sense, I think, for us as gay men that we were both very vulnerable, but also that nobody cared. Now, the one thing we can say about the coronavirus is it's not getting a lack of attention. Uh, If anything, we're paying far too much attention to it, and it's totally drowned out everything else going on in the world. So, you know, apart from... One could also add that, of course, this is a virus that is spread rather differently. Uh, Within a few years, we up all knew that HIV was transmitted through very specific uh, contact of bodily fluids. Uh, Coronavirus, in a sense, is much more scary because it seems to be possible to to become contagious by just being in the same room as someone who is already infected. Yeah, I think that has been kind of something that I've been thinking about I imagine, and I say imagine because I was simply too young at this stage uh, when, you know, like I was born in 1984. So I just simply wasn't cognizant necessarily of the dialogues around HIV and the the scale of stigmatization. That was stuff I became aware of as I grew up. But I I mean, it, it must be I imagine for many um, gay men and members of the LGBTIQ community more generally, it must be strange watching the the focus on coronavirus, given that in the United States in particular, HIV took a an enormous toll uh, on well across a whole range of communities really, and even when it was clear that large numbers of people were dying, the Reagan administration was dismissive of it. There are iconic press conferences where Reagan's press secretary laughed at reporters who were asking questions um, about it. Um, Yeah, do you, like, I'm interested as well in the historical perspective, I guess, of this sense of having been at the centre of 
a, a plague, if you like, but a plague that was isolated or was used to stigmatise, what your observations are about the way coronavirus seems to be increasingly used to stigmatise, in particular, um, uh, China and Chinese people? Well, I think we have to go back. I mean, there is a weird parallel, of course, in that one could say that Donald Trump's reactions in the first couple of months to the epidemic uh, were a very sad echo of Ronald Reagan's reactions to um, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, Trump kept downplaying it um, and even now shows great contempt for medical and scientific advice. Um, in terms of the stigmatization, yes, there's been some really nasty stuff directed at, uh, chi at Chinese Australians. We know that. Um, and of course, Trump for a while insisted on referring to this as the Chinese virus. Um, but I suspect, you know, there is a sense in which people will look for scapegoats. And maybe the, the, the sad echo of the, the uh, attacks on China are that uh, in the first few years of the AIDS epidemic, there were parts of the world that quite deliberately discriminated against Americans. I mean, there was... There were gay bars in Japan that put up signs saying no Americans allowed mm. uh, because they identified the new uh, disease in the United States. There is something rather sad in the echo of this in, in, in currently blaming China. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think, again, the difference is that, at least in Australia, the Prime Minister has been very clear that there is no sensible reason to think of the virus in national or ethnic terms. And while there have been some very unfortunate incidents, um, I think the amount of scapegoating is, is far less than was true uh, in the early days of HIV, when after all the scapegoating uh, came from a number of quite uh, authoritative figures. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think? I'm interested in this psychological need that we seem to have when it comes to grappling with disease. And I'm thinking here about Susan Sontag's analysis of, of plague and the way we stigmatize particular diseases. And I know you were writing a great deal in the same period about how AIDS had impacted upon American psychology. Where do you think that need to ascribe uh, morality to disease comes from? Um, look, when something terrible happens, I suspect the normal reaction is to look for somebody or something to blame. I am, I mean, I think we have to think rather differently about what's happened in the United States, what's happened in China, and what's happening in the rest of the world. In the United States, all sorts of very nasty scripts are playing out because the president from the beginning has chosen to use the epidemic as a political weapon. And I think we have to be clear that in Australia that has not been the case. So if I'm thinking locally, what I would say is that by and large in Australia, we have not seen the great desire to attach uh, coronavirus, to, to, to blame anyone, uh, to stigmatise groups. I think, though, that what you said at the beginning is really important, that a new disease that takes lives can create all sorts of unnecessary panics. And in a period when people are panicked, 
they're not going to behave rationally and they're not necessarily going to behave very well. I think, again, we've done pretty well in Australia. And, you know, I am thinking back to the early early AIDS days where I don't think we did do very well. Uh, There were some very, very nasty examples of real discrimination uh, that we haven't actually seen. I'm not, for example, aware that anybody in Australia has been refused a medical attention uh, because they're suspected of having coronavirus. On the other hand, there were many cases in the early stages of the AIDS epidemic where that was the case. I mean, I remember clearly how difficult it was for anybody who was thought to have AIDS to get to see a dentist. So I think that here, at least, there hasn't been as much of that irrational hunting for blame, looking for scapegoats. Uh, As I say, I think in the US it's rather different. Um, We're now seeing demonstrations in a number of US states against the governors uh, in protest at at lockdowns and and, uh, social isolation uh, and protests that are being encouraged by the President of the United States. That is something quite extraordinary and, in fact, something that goes beyond anything even Ronald Reagan did. Presuming, you know, even if we do get a vaccine, say, in a year or something like that, this whole situation has kind of highlighted, I think, a fundamental problem with the the way the world, how interconnected the world is, and the fact that we don't have these international systems in place to effectively manage the crisis. Do you have a perspective on how the WHO has handled it? Well, it's become very fashionable to complain about WHO and to argue that they are too much under the influence of China and that as a consequence, they were very slow to react. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Um, I think the reality is, like all international organisations, they have to be very careful in how they deal with large, powerful countries because they need their cooperation. And had WHO been more critical of China, uh, there would presumably have been even less cooperation. I think in any case, what defects may have, there may have been, WHO is essential because it is the only international organization we have that can get advice, resources, information, data across to most parts of the world. And yes, it probably did slip up in a number of ways. Whether if one stood back and asked, okay, did WHO react more slowly given what they knew than the United States did given what they knew, I'm not at all sure who who is more blameworthy. Um, Of course, the current American administration would deny any blame whatsoever, but I think we're sitting we're in a position to actually say, well, in fact, both WHO and the United States responded very slowly. Uh, we did respond ahead of the United States in most cases. Uh, but at this stage, I think we need WHO more, not less, than we ever have. It seemed, though, nonetheless, that whatever the WHO's performance was, it was down to countries to actually act on the different information that was circulating and that it was possible to act on that information in a responsible way. There nonetheless has been um, members of the Liberal Party picking up this narrative about the WHO, suggesting that we should be withdrawing funding uh, for it. Do you see like less international cooperation at the end of this? I think it's a really interesting question because before all this happened, Morrison did make a couple of 
I thought, very, very uh, unfortunate, blunt attacks on the international system. He's been, he's been much more careful uh, during the current epidemic. And although there have been attacks on WHO, I don't think that any member of the government, as you seen from backbenchers, has said Australia should withdraw or withdraw funding from WHO. I mean, my great fear is that the necessary measures to combat coronavirus, which are isolation and closing borders, of course, feeds into the narrative of right-wing nationalism. Uh, Donald Trump, after all, is is able to say, well, you know, I did the right thing. I wanted to close our borders and those horrible Democrats stopped me and now look at the consequence. Now, we know that's nonsense, but rhetorically, it probably works. So my sense is that even as if we do get to a stage where we have both a cure and a vaccine, and I have no, I'm not a medical, I have no idea how possible or soon that's likely to be, the, the lasting effect is to, in fact, increase a desire for national isolation. Um, and I think that the, the epidemic has come at a period in history when, sadly, there are many countries in the world where a very nasty sort of authoritarian nationalism is flourishing. Um, and, you know, one can, one can leap around the world from the Philippines to Brazil to Hungary back to the United States, if you like, to Russia, in all those places, the rhetoric of right-wing authoritarianism can quite easily take the virus as an excuse to continue border controls and prevent the flow of people, uh, even when that's not medically necessary. In terms of your experiences from the HIV epidemic, do you have any predictions as to kind of how it might change society or how people think? Most people living in wealthy in a wealthy country somehow believe that we know how to deal with viruses and bacterial infections. We also have probably not been exposed since HIV uh, to anything on the scale of SARS or Ebola in other parts of the world. So in a sense, yes, most of us, including I think most gay men, are pretty unprepared for this. And again, I think that I'm wary of drawing too many comparisons. I think that it's perfectly understandable if, if you've lived through one epidemic and another one comes along, of course, it will reawaken a whole lot of, of memories. But I think the responses that this needs are rather different. There was, after all, in responding to HIV, no need for social isolation. There was the whole invention um, and glorification, in a way, very good glorification of, of safe sex. Now, unfortunately, with coronavirus, there is no such thing as safe sex uh, except solitary um, at, at one end of a computer. My webcam, so, yeah. <laughs> any, any device. But, but the point is that one of the major struggles in the first few years of the AIDS epidemic was to persuade people that HIV was not transmitted by touching, uh, by drinking from the same cup, by casual contact. This epidemic requires exactly the opposite. It requires people to actually give up any sort of physical contact or proximity. Uh, and that's very different. 
Now, I think that we don't know. I have no sense of what this is going to mean in the long run because I don't know how long the long run will be. But I think we can see that certain patterns that are already in existence are going to expand. I mean, there will be more people working from home. There will be a shake-up, I'm sure, of the economy in which certain sorts of jobs will decline, other sorts of jobs uh, will probably increase. Um, I'm very conscious of the impact this is having on the university sector, and it's very hard to see Australian universities coming through this without major losses, Um, and that's going to have an impact on the sort of tertiary education that's available for the next decade. All the universities pretty well have been extraordinarily dependent on overseas students to a quite absurd degree. Uh, And it's quite right to point the finger at them and say they were deeply irresponsible, uh, particularly the fact that it's our richest and best endowed universities that have been the most greedy at at, uh, seeking out foreign students. How they're going to manage a decline, and we have a few universities in which it's over 40% of the student body, suddenly are not going to be there for the next couple of years. All those sorts of things are going to have a huge impact, uh, not just on the people who work in, say, universities or airlines or tourism, uh, but across the whole society. And as you've been suggesting several times, they're going to be psychological impacts. I mean, I think we, we, we can be pretty sure that as restrictions lift, there'll be a lot more divorces and a lot more pregnancies. One of the few good things I can see coming out of this is that I don't think the government will ever be able to wind back new start to the appalling level, low level that it existed at before uh, the epidemic forced them to double it. One actually interesting observation a, a, a heterosexual friend of mine who is a father made to me was that all of these men, who many of whom were quite enlightened and you know were were you know a, 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 like to think they had a progressive point of view on parenting, have suddenly been forced to spend a huge amount of time with their children. They've been forced into actually, yes. you know, yes. into probably co-parenting. You wonder, you would hope that this could possibly actually reframe elements of gender relations in Australia potentially, um, you know, in, well, in terms could, of equalising things. it could also, yes, and it could also ironically reduce the need for childcare as it becomes more and more acceptable for both parents to take a real role and to work from home. Um, and I think all of that is possible. Um, again, that's probably most true for privileged middle-class employees who are able to work at home. Um, And there have been some interesting studies that show pretty clear correlation between the wealth of the suburb and the number of people whose jobs are secure and can be carried on at home. Um, I think we're going to have an ongoing real unemployment issue that's going to not be resolved for quite a long period um, unless the government decides in a way that would be very unusual for a conservative government Uh, to put massive expenditure into building up Australia's manufacturing industry uh, because there have been calls as a consequence of the shutdowns uh, to expand Australian manufacturing. Over the last 20, 30 years, I think often 
It has been people who have been a little bit older towards the end of their careers when those manufacturing jobs have been phased out, but it has not always been the case. But with this particular crisis, you will have a whole generation of people whose jobs require physical proximity, who will be, you know, in, in, in very, very dire straits, whatever their skill set, whatever their age. So yeah. there will be this huge pressure. Oh, sure. Yeah. And of course, there are, there are whole industries. I mean, it'll take a long time for the airline industry, uh, the hotel industry, um, to rebuild. It'll have huge implications for real estate. You think about all those apartments um, in Carlton that have been built essentially to house overseas students. You know, there's a that you can you can picture during Melbourne a line from RMIT in the city to Melbourne University in Carlton, a line of big apartment blocks that were, that were essentially peopled by overseas students. Now, if they're not coming, that sector starts to collapse. Mm. As that, as there are fewer and fewer tenants, all the small businesses that serve them start to collapse. So there's a ripple effect that is going to take a very long time to change. I mean, I think it's going to actually make it a lot easier, perhaps for other people to move into the inner city, because I think there'll be a glut of housing as the overseas student market collapses. There's been a lot of debate between tenants and landlords, and obviously there's been some poor behaviour on the part of landlords. But it's worth acknowledging that in much of Australia, that like the landlord class in Australia captures a very large portion of the population, you know, like because of how real estate has been this industry that's been beaten up and treated as this golden goose. And all of a sudden there will, certainly for the next couple of years, but possibly for the foreseeable future, there will be a very substantial number of people who will not see the gains they they were perhaps relying well, on. Yes, yes. Mm. I th- that's certainly true. And the same will be true for a lot of uh, retirees who've invested heavily, uh, not just in a second or third house, but also in uh, shares in things like the big banks, which are going to have to cut their dividends. What are any final kind of reflections that you have about the coronavirus and uh, the likely long-term impacts that you think it'll have? You know, I think that... The saddest thing for me is that it has ended the sense the world is accessible. It's going to take a very long time before we get back to the possibility of imagining that it's easy to travel across the world. It's going to cut us off more and more from exploring, understanding and interconnecting with people. I I can foresee for the next year a gradual lowering of restrictions in Australia, maybe Australia and New Zealand together uh, will start to be able to travel interstate. The collapse of international travel, with, and along with that comes the collapse of migration, of us, our ability to give asylum to refugees, uh, a collapse of the international student body. All of that is going to fundamentally, I think, turn us inwards. At the same time, if, if the virus, we don't know. We just don't know how rapidly the virus will continue to expand. Um, but it's hard not to imagine a global world that is meaner, poorer, and more volatile. And I won't say at the end of this because I don't think we know what the end of this looks like. That's Dennis Altman speaking with Toby Halligan.
If you like what you heard, and how couldn't you love it? Now is the time to help out your local community radio station. Times are tough for lots of folks, but as a non-profit community organization, we're powered and funded by listeners. And sadly, another part of our income from sponsorships has generally seen a big decline. So it's more important than ever to subscribe and donate to your local station. That's it for us today here at the Informer Daily. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Potts. Mahalo. is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.